Would you give your mum, dad, aunt or that uncle who hugged your partner a little too long free access to your phone? Oh no! Oh my god, it's, it's a really long video! Ew! In Dave's brand new YouTube original, Get Off My Phone, we've got six comedians to give their phones over to a relative with total freedom to read messages, DMs, photos and browser history. What's your social history? Sorry? What to do? Tips for relief. The rules are simple. Their relative can read anything they want and even make calls from the comedian's phone. What is this? What is I know what this one is. That, that looks really okay. bad. Starring Tanya Moore, Anya Magliano, Finlay Christie, Travis J with his mum Angie Lamar, Hayley Morris, Grace Campbell and dad Alistair Campbell. Slightly sexually compromising <laughs> Divulging their deepest digital secrets. <laughs> what the hell is happening? Get off my phone. A Dave YouTube original. Available now on Dave's YouTube channel. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is a Dave original podcast. This podcast contains bad language, in case that's not your thing. Jordan Brooks, look at what you've done. I'm Jordan Brooks, a comedian with lots of nice reviews from publications that sadly no one reads. This week, I talked to Nick Helm, whose brash and unpredictable performances saw him quickly rise from the open mic circuit to an industry favourite. Since then, he's starred in TV shows like Loaded and Uncle, won numerous awards and even released a few albums. Here, we talk about his early experiences of living with a mysterious door in the house. You couldn't open the door, so you didn't know what was in there and the fatal consequences of doing too many live shows year after year. It was mainly just to sort of, like, remind people, I'm I'm still alive. Good birth? Yeah. Good birth. Uh, yeah. I mean... I, yeah? I got, I got out in one piece. Can I take you back to nine months earlier? Sure. What do you reckon was happening that day? I think it's cold. I think... I've, I've thought about this. Yeah. I'm on October the 1st. Mm-hmm. Which means that this was like late right. January. You're an October first baby. Yeah. So this is like late January, early early February. Yeah. It's not Valentine's Day, I don't think. No. I think that's too much of a thing. But I think it's. I think they were um, starting out in London in a flat. They had one baby, and uh, they were in sort of like a small flat. And I reckon they didn't have central heating. So you think they conceived you for warmth? Bringing in another human body into the family home is also going to add 
an extra bit of warmth for at least 18 years, possibly longer if, if your parents are relatively permissive like mine were. I got to stick around for till my early 20s. I don't think it was necessarily uh, my parents' decision how long I stayed around. I think it was more... 18 years <sighs> is, a gr- is great. Anything else? Come on, mate. <laughs> tapping their watch all the time at you isn't it time over dinner isn't it time i mean i guess do you remember anything as a baby do you remember being a baby define baby uh like when you sort of like they're they're small and they don't know anything yeah nothing springing to mind i've got to say and i do have to say it no i'm really glad you have what were you like as a toddler do you like i mean i guess we don't have thoughts, right, as a baby, so we're not able to separate ourselves from our parents, are we? Oh, I thought you meant uh, the umbilical cord. They did cut that, like, right at the beginning, like, right from, like, day five. I was I was free. Yeah. Yeah. That must have been liberating. Yeah, I guess it was. Nice. I guess it did feel sort of like I wasn't my own man at that point, and then when they did cut that cord, I felt Here we go. there's a lot in the world for me to discover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess I just sort of like, you know, I just, I took it one hand at a time, one knee at a time. You know, I was crawling. <laughs> so. You didn't pop out and immediately start sprinting? No, no. I, that was that was weeks later. But um, I've sort of adopted that attitude for the majority of my time. If I can crawl there, then that's no bad thing. I have a lot of dreams where I'm like crawling. In my dream, I'll imagine that I'm on hands, like I'm on my hand and feet walking. Is that something that you relate to? Or no, no. In my dreams, I'm flying. You're flying. <laughs> You're flying. Do you ever like have what's it called a lucid dream where you you go, oh, I'm in a dream. I could do anything, and then you don't do anything. Because that's what I do. Um, no, that no. Because <laughs> I tend to sort of call the shots when I'm awake. Do you know what I mean? I let the gods of the past guide me when I'm asleep. So because you've got full control in your waking life, actually, when you're in your dream, you're just having a, having a night off. Yeah, why not? Put my, put my feet up. <laughs> put my feet up, have a snooze. That's, uh, that's, that's my motto. Chill out, relax. So when you have a dream, you're in your dream, and then in your dream, you get into bed and go to sleep. Yeah, if I'm not flying, but to be <laughs> honest, um, I don't... We're not pigeons, do you understand? Our bones are different. Yeah, no, I get it. So, yeah. like, pigeons have hollow bones, whereas we have um, all sorts of marrow in them. We're full We're of marrow. full of marrow. We're chock full of marrow, right? So when we fly, <laughs> we can only do it in bursts of maybe 30, 40 seconds at a time. So in my dreams, I'm flying, mm. yeah. But there's a lot of sitting down in between. When you were a child, right, little toddler and stuff, what do you remember about that time? Or do you have to rely on your parents telling you what you were like? It's weird. You know how, like, um, most people have uh, no memories until a certain age of themselves. Mm. When I was 10, they loved me like a five-year-old. You have, to earn, you have to earn your parents' love. You have to earn it. Absolutely. And I try and earn that every day. So you're still earning it. Aren't we all? Gene and Tony are very hard to please. Right. What, what was your living situation like? I lived in the top room in the house by the attic mm. and the scary spare room. Why was it scary? You couldn't open the door, so you didn't know what was in there. I always have a fear of the unknown. So there was this mystery door up, up the top yes, that couldn't be opened, and you never opened it. Either it couldn't be opened, or 
once it was opened, you couldn't shut it. It was one or the other. Because they're two very different things, aren't they? Well, yes, but like either you got locked in the room and you couldn't get out or you couldn't get in there in the first place. It was just something about the door. This door, it sounds like obviously you can't remember exactly whether you could go through it or whether you couldn't, but it obviously represents something to you. It's stuck in your head. And you're you're saying it represents the unknown. It represents the fear of, of of what's behind the door. Well, I think part of the reason why I can't remember much about the door is because I haven't given it any thought in thirty five years. Let's just say that my mind is a fire, and you're stoking it, <laughs> and uh, you keep prodding it, and little bits of spark and ash starts accumulating in the air. So I remember once I stole some brown chalk from a DIY shop. Why? Why? Because I was a child and I had artistic temperaments, but I had no um, financial ability to uh, support my endeavours. I drew all over that spare room. I drew all over it. I ruined the walls. I ruined the floor. I ruined the ceiling. And when my parents found me, they were like, what's all this brown chalk doing everywhere? And I had to say, um, there was a fire within me, mother, and it needed to come out. And uh, my dad grabbed me by the collar and he said, right, you're going to go to this DIY shop and apologise. So I went to the DIY shop and I said, I'm sorry, mate. Uh, I saw the chalk. I didn't have the money or the finances to afford it myself, so I took it. And he said, um, I understand, I've been there before, um, don't do it again. I said, I won't, I won't, I can't get in that room anyway. And he said, fine. Wait, 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 he said, I've been there before. We've all wanted to express ourselves artistically via the medium of, of brown chalk. Well, brown chalk was the, was on the lowest shelf. That was the shelf I could reach. Ah, I mean, I'm sure okay. there are other colours, but um, but from what was easily accessible from where I was, it was the brown chalk. Yeah. I'm not even sure if it was necessarily chalk. It could have been clay, or it could have been like, yeah, it could have been paint sticks. It could have been, it could have been something. And I'm assuming yeah, it was a yeah. DIY shop. Uh, now I think about it, I've not been to many DIY shops that sell brown chalk on a low shelf, so maybe it was an art yeah. supplies shop. Or maybe maybe it didn't happen at all. This happened. Okay. Believe me. All right. Sometimes when I look at my hands, they're still stained brown. It sounds like you're you're painting a picture where you were in some way possessed by some sort of evil spirit because you were doing a lot of mad shit. There's a there's a fragility to the way that you're telling this story, and it sounds like something real spooky happened. I'm not sure about that. When you say mad shit, there's two things that happened. Okay, go on. It was me going in the room that I wasn't meant to go in, and me ruining the room by drawing all over it. But that's where the mad shit starts and ends, I'm afraid, Jordan. You had this door, and you didn't know what was behind it, or you did know what was behind it. But either way, you remember the door quite prominently... And it was in your room, and presumably you looked at it a lot, you went to sleep, you'd look at it in the middle of the night and think, what's behind that door? I'm not trying to dwell on this or give this unnecessary oxygen, but it definitely sounds quite important to me. I've never thought about this door once in, I say 35, 36 years. 
I've not thought about this door well, once. Well, start thinking. Start thinking. But now you're talking about it. Now it seems like it's a metaphor for my entire life. I'm trying to make it a metaphor so that this will pay off. I get it. You're really good at what you do because you've <laughs> gone, you've had barely any information and you've clung on to the one thing that I've said. Let's move on, but almost certainly um, we'll come back to this. I think we should come back to this. I think this is, I think this is the very, this is the thread that we pull that unravels the carpet, you know? Did you have a nice time as a child? What were you like as a child? We, well, we moved when I was seven. So we okay. must have sold that house along with that bloody spare room. Where did you move to? We moved to St Albans. It's the commuter belt. It's where people move to mm. um, travel it back into London. Um, and that's what my parents right. did. What did they do? My mother was a maths lecturer near mm-hmm. the RAF base. What relevance does that have? Because every time I went to visit my mum at work, I'd have to go past the RAF museum and I'd think, that looks fun. And then I'd have to go and watch her teach maths. Do you understand? Yeah, I get it now. So did you ever consider joining the RAF? Was that like an early ambition for you? Not for very long, you know. Just one of those fleeting where you go, ah, you imagine your life playing out in a particular way and then just dismiss it. Maybe that's why I fly in my dreams, but um, it's all relatable, Mm. isn't it? It It all comes back to... Whatever it all we comes said together, it all connects, man. Life is definitely not just pure chaos that we ascribe meaning to. I think, I think there are dots that can be joined that fundamentally tell us a truth about who we are. That's I think I that might be the case, but I don't always believe it's our responsibility to make sense of our own lives. Yeah, I think you're right. I think wait for other people to figure it out on our behalf. Do you know what I mean? You wait for the biography to come out after your death that explains it all. I do think that about careers sometimes. I always think that, Mm. you know, you can be so sort of like caught up in what do I do next and what should I do that you actually end up not doing anything. And that really it's for other people to make sense of after you've, you know, crashed and burnt. Because you don't get to decide what your narrative is, do you? You don't get to decide how you're remembered. We can do. I mean, you can you can stress yourself out trying to control that. I think that you can control it. You can you can spend the majority of your waking life trying to control your narrative, mm-hmm. and when you're gone, people will say they were a bit of a controlling cunt, weren't they? You know. <laughs> I think you just need to let it happen. How how concerned are you then with your with your narrative? Do you it sounds like you just you've got a very hands-off approach. Well, I find that, you know, I really care or I cannot care and it really doesn't seem to have much sway in how things go. Is that something that you've you've had to learn? over time when you hit a certain age and you go do you know what actually i can't control any of this stuff yeah before the pandemic i was 39 and they say that you stop caring when you hit 40 it's a combination of uh age and acquired wisdom and medication but yeah i don't care so much Uh, with the emphasis on medication how did you get into comedy I always liked comedy, not necessarily stand-up comedy, but when I was in that room upstairs, my dad used to read stories to me, you know, because I was a child. He would fall asleep. Oh, well, he'd fall asleep before you? Yeah, so I'd climb home for him, and I would go down the flights of stairs, and my mum would be watching what looked like a news programme, mm. 
but was actually Jasper Carrot. I'd never seen anything like it. There was a man by himself in the middle of a room in front of an audience talking and there weren't like costumes or anything like that. It was just a person talking Mm. and everyone was laughing and it looked fun, but it felt like a very much like a current affairs program and it was Jasper Carrot. But, um, but yeah, so we used to watch like Jasper Carrot and Kenny Everett and French and Saunders and the young ones and like all of that stuff. When me and my sister got our own comedy taste, we watched the Mary Whitehouse experience and Fist of Fun and stuff like that. And then I got into Jack D and Joe Brand. Mm. Uh, my sister liked Joe Brand. And then, but I never ever thought that I would be a comedian. It was just something that I really liked. When I was 16, my teacher took us up to the Edinburgh Festival in a production of Romeo and Juliet. And we just would do the play at like midday. And then afterwards, we would split off and then we would all go and see stand-up comedy. So you went up with the school, you say, or your college? Our teacher, when I was 16. You did drama then? I I did have friends, but I feel like I really found who I was when I started hanging around the art and music block. So you went to the Fringe and then what was, what was the thing? Do you remember a particular performer or show that you saw when you were like, okay? I saw JJ Whitehead at the Tron and I thought he was great and I loved the Tron. And then I saw Al Murray mm. at the uh, Cabaret Bar in the Pleasance and he got me up on stage and he said, you're not old enough to be here. <laughs> and then, and I, and I, and, and years later when I get people up on stage, I've sort of subconsciously gone, Oh, because I went to see Al Murray like three times and he always got me up on stage, like by coincidence. Mm. And I always felt incredible. And people would come up to me afterwards and buy me a drink or whatever. And um, uh, and I guess on a subconscious level, I kind of, that's why I started doing audience participation because, you know, it's not like you're picking on someone. It's like you're trying to include someone. So I sort of like <laughs> pick, pick someone that's, genuinely enjoying the show and I get them on stage with me and they get a bit humiliated for a little bit but then they end up in the long run being a hero Mm. and you know you sort of like take them through a journey I think that that's sort of like uh, maybe a three times in a lifetime opportunity that you give someone and I guess on a subconscious level I kind of that's why I started doing audience participation because you know it's not like you're picking on someone. It's like you're trying to include someone, I guess. Well, that sounds like absolute bollocks to me. How sensitive are you to audiences' feelings during a performance? Like you said, you can spot when someone's not enjoying it. How much do you think about that during the show and stuff? Does it bother you? I guess it probably bothered me at first. When I started, I wanted everyone to love me like all the other comedians. You know, you've got a whole lineup of comedians and one after another, they all go on and they smash it and you, and everyone loves them. I think there was sort of like a gap between what my act was and what it was in my head mm. and how it related to the other acts. And now I sort of like have made peace with the fact that I'm probably going to win over half an audience and the other half will hate me. But the half that like me will really, really like me. Well, they really go for it, right? Because a part of it is them 
noticing that half the room aren't getting it and that actually contributes to their enjoyment as well like i found that there was some of the best gigs i've had is where the room is completely split but the ones who are really going for it are really going for it often because half the room aren't what we do is we do something different from the majority of other acts we want to make people feel uncomfortable and we want to put people through a little bit of a we want to put people through a grinder and at the end of it, they come out of it like they've survived something. When when I did Dare to Dream, I gave every, I gave like the front row plastic ponchos because I sweated so much. <laughs> and when they came out, it was like they'd been on a log flume, like they'd survived. Did you notice a period in your life when comedy started to take over a bit more? When I finished university, I was um, I had my own theatre and education company, and um, I did some plays that went around schools and I'd have to stand up in front of like 5,000 boys at a boys school and tell them not to drive their car fast and um, I hated it and I wasn't and I wasn't good at it my takeaway from it at the time was if I can stand in front of 4,000 or 5,000 kids that hate me saying something that I don't believe in then I can definitely stand in front of 20 people in a room above a pub and say something that I do believe in. But be equally hated? When I was 25, I literally, I didn't, uh, I didn't want to do theatre education anymore. I didn't know what to do. So I made like a big list of all the things that I could do, like write a book, uh, be in a band, you know, it was all creative stuff. I even put like, like be an astronaut, be a cowboy. I even put, I didn't put any limits on it. And then with a pen, I'd cross out, right, I, I, was, I, was, I was shit at maths, so I'm not going to be an astronaut. I'm not going to be a cowboy. I don't want to be in a band because I've just done um, like Edinburgh and theatre. I used to use all the money from the theatre and education to fund Edinburgh shows, um, like plays and stuff that mm-hmm. I wrote. And then. Um, I'd just cross everything out and be like, I don't want to rely on other people. And and, I, and a book will take months. So what I'll do is uh, I, I ended up with just stand-up comedy. And so I was just like, oh, I'll give that a go. And when I tried it, I wasn't sure what I would get out of it. But what I felt was I felt like part of me had always been missing. And when I did stand-up comedy for the first time... You lost even more of yourself. I met people. I got another gig out of it. Um, I enjoyed getting up on stage. I wasn't very good, but I knew that I could learn that. Mm. I loved doing a brain-dead job all day and then in the evening going out and doing like five minutes and then struggling to get home again afterwards. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. <laughs> so Nick, by the time you were 45, yeah. you'd done a fair few more fringe shows, right? It's fair to say you'd... Um, You'd sort of made it your priority, hadn't you? You'd, you'd gone into a very creatively uh, exciting period in your life. What, what, what happened? Why, why, why were you suddenly just churning out these shows? Well, I did a trilogy of shows, if you remember. Mm -hmm. um, the first one was Chasing the Dragon. Mm -hmm. um, and then I did uh, Chasing the Dragon 2. Mm-hmm. And then Chasing the Dragon 3. Do you regret just doing the same show three times? Well, they were slightly different, if you remember. The thing that changed most was that they got performed in progressively smaller venues. No, you said at the time that that was your choice, but it, it sounds like audiences were dwindling. But It wasn't my choice, but I think by the third one, we sort of like realised that venues were really not really that essential, and I could chase the dragon wherever. We were bringing in very few punters, mm. um, uh, largely because we were we were promoting Chasing the Dragon Three, like in the outskirts of Leith. We we're also on a really unfortunate time slot of uh, two fifteen a.m., and so I really thought that you know we'll we'll call it an end at the end of this trilogy. No one's come to see this show anyway. Uh, I've got a good recording of it. Um, uh, off, off my, off my phone, um, which I'd accidentally left on uh, record in the dressing room, mm -hmm. but I left the door open and and it, uh, and it all picked up right. So I had sort of like a record of that event, and we just said, Do you know what, there will be no chasing the dragon for. You'll know this, but the way the show worked was that the first half was largely uh, laugh-free setups. You know, mm -hmm. um, and then just about the 33 minute mark was when all of that, you know, homework is what mm -hmm. I used to call the first half of the show. It, you know, it, it'd be very much like going to Harvester and filling up for like a solid first half of the meal on, on broccoli. And then when the second, you know, course comes along, it's all sort of like sizzling steak. Um, and hot sausages. Were you the happiest you'd, you'd ever been at that point, though, even though you felt like maybe the audiences weren't so keen? You, you were in your element, though, right? You were, you were enjoying comedy more than you ever have. Absolutely. I mean, I was on fire, um, which was part of the reason why I didn't want to do the show too much longer. Mm. Um, 
at the end, there would actually be a dragon that came out. Yeah. Uh, made of kind of like a combination of, you know, um, a papier-mâché and mm. polystyrene uh, with uh, the ends of Coca-Cola bottles as eyes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it would breathe flames. Uh, I did I, I did get burnt quite badly. You suffered quite a few burns, and people on the front row with ponchos, of course, that, that melted and seared into their skin. Yeah, like vacuum-packed, vacuum-packed mm-hmm. audience it was, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. They had to be sort of uh, slid out. Is it fair to say that between that period, up until about you were, you, you were 50, and you were doing these shows... And audiences were getting smaller and smaller to the point where around about mid-50s, you were actually doing the show to no one deliberately. That's a misconception. It was never no one because there was the dragon. Even with very little audience, I was still considered a name. Yeah. And so it was often a very good opportunity to let like a new up-and-comer don the dragon outfit and at the end I'd let them fly a... (laughs) the audience on the way out. You were running out of energy, right? I mean, you must have get, be getting tired doing these performances. So a lot of the shows were just you sat on a chair doing nothing whilst uh, a newcomer cavorted on stage like a dragon. Yeah, pranced, pranced around. It was less of a show, more of a sort of staged advert. It did, it did become kind of like a bit of an industry joke. Mm. Uh, I found out years later that, um, that people would say, oh, um, I did Nick Helm's show tonight and I ended up with less audience members than usual, Um, which did hurt because I do feel like, you know, they got to keep, um, you know, the leggings. Was this was this to the detriment of your personal life? Like, what was going on? Were you were you avoiding anything that was going on at the time? Um, No, no, not really. Um, I don't think I was avoiding... I mean, it's well known. The only thing I avoid is breakfast. Um, and uh, it, it tends to sort of like slow me down first thing in the morning. But yeah. like um, uh, the, the shows didn't ever really get in the way of that because they were on so so bloody late mm. or early in the morning um, mm-hmm. that I'd normally sleep through breakfast anyway. So it was never really a problem. Um yeah. It was mainly just to sort of like, you know, you know, remind people I'm I'm still alive. It became a way of you sort of checking in, you know, and people going, Oh, let's see if Nick Helm's on at the Edinburgh Fringe this year. Oh good, he's still alive. Yeah. You know, if you if you weren't doing the fringe, then there, that that was a cause for concern. What I realized much later hmm. uh was that in actual fact, if you can get yourself um a, a space in the guide in the Edinburgh guide mm-hmm. and you can get yourself a flyering team uh, a decent poster some good sort of like places to put that poster up and down the Royal Mile or wherever around the city mm-hmm. if you can nail all of those things you actually don't need to do a show uh, because people will see that you're on and they'll go he's alright mm-hmm. and you actually save a lot of time and effort um and you can actually get on all the way through August doing your day job and make money that way. And you were just working from home, yeah, whilst you had these posters in Edinburgh. I was just working at the pub. Every couple of days you get someone to stick up another five stars on there. And, um, you know, all of your contemporaries, uh, they'll see the stars on your poster and they'll be, you know, furious mm. that you're doing so well. 
not once did it occur to them to actually go and see the show. Mm. And uh, and that's where, you know, that's where you, you, you get one up on them eventually. And, that, and that's what comedy is all about, isn't it? It's uh... Getting one up on your <laughs> colleagues and, and contemporaries. Early on in my life, it was about the camaraderie, but uh, that got beaten. That got beaten out of me by the end of um, Chasing the Dragon Two. Mm. Uh, Chasing the Dragon Three was actually a very bitter show. Mm. Um, Chasing the Dragon Four was up for the uh, uh, imagination of you know my su- supposed audience, mm-hmm. and then Chasing the Dragon Five, we just hit the ground running using what they've imagined for the fourth instalment, mm. and we really just tied up a lot of loose ends. And I just said, right, no more Chasing the Dragon. I'm not going to chase the dragon anymore. But then you did, didn't you? For twenty more years, what what was the thinking behind that? Well, the thinking behind that was that I got funding from an anonymous source, <laughs> uh, and uh, they said that um, we bloody love these Chasing the Dragon shows that you're doing. Uh, yeah. More, please. And they just kept like put, popping money in my bank account um, for another 20 years. You were performing into the later stages of your life. So, you know, your, your 70s, early 80s, you were, still, you were still going up to the fringe. And, in fact, doctors were, were saying to you, please stop doing fringe shows. No, not for health reasons. Um, a couple of the doctors had come along to see it and they were not impressed. <laughs> um, and they said, please, just stop. And um, and I said, no way. They weren't actually my doctors either. It was always a dream of mine to die on stage. And I'd been doing it for 30 years by that point. Um, well, you've been doing, I guess, a, I and, guess a sort of dress, a dress run for the real deal. You did die on on stage, um, but the, the circumstances around it are very peculiar. Um, is it? Am I right in thinking that this anonymous benefactor actually got in contact and said, "I'll give you the most amount of money to put on the best possible show," but here's the caveat: you've got to actually die on stage. No, that wasn't exactly what happened. I was invited. Uh, onto the stage mm-hmm. by another comedian. I was in the audience, and mm-hmm. it was a piece of audience participation that went wrong. It was during the time when I was up in Edinburgh. I'd gone to see a show, um, and uh, I was invited up on stage, and I went up on stage, and it was a part of the show where we see how many ping-pong balls we can fit in our mouths i managed to beat the world record um which is five and um I, so i managed to get six in but wow. um i posthumously got um disqualified because uh, the sixth one actually did end up in my esophagus which isn't mm. technically my mouth yeah and that was the beginning of the end as they say the end quickly followed the beginning because you did you did die there and then. Yes. But we didn't realise this, of course, because you'd, you'd paid in advance for, for posters going up advertising your shows for, for the decade that followed. So people actually 
thought you were still alive for quite a while. Well, yeah, and the other thing was that um, I'd had a large part of my body hollowed out mm. and replaced with animatronics. When you when you were actually then clinically identified as as dead, your animatronic system malfunctioned, and um, yes, you you sort of dropped dropped to the floor. Talk me through your your funeral. I'd always insisted on a burial uh, because there was always a part of me that thought, if there is a mistake, I'll just dig out. And mm. um, we just thought a burial will be fine, you know, which is famous now. Um, uh, the vicar came up to me uh, during the service and mm. uh, he placed a, a, a Bible on my chest and it sparked something in the circuits and my hand bloody grasped onto his mm. and uh, they had to bury me, but bury him up to his elbow. For about five days, people bought him tea and sandwiches and stuff to keep him going, mm. but he said, Do you know what, I'm just going to stick it out with... Uh, with Nick here now, you know, make sure well, he's, he's not He started to forget what his life was before all of this. You know, he was he was actually, it, it, strangely, he, he said, you know what, I feel like my life's been building to this point and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see how it plays out. Unfortunately, he did then die. He did die. He did die. But I think that that's, um, that's a, lot of, a lot of what happens, isn't it, when you get to the end, is that, uh, is that you sort of like take credit for it, like you meant to do it that way. Mm. How would you like to be remembered? Just an all-rounder, really. Nick Helm, look at what you've done. That was Nick Helm there, who never quite got over the definitely huge significance of that mysterious door in his bedroom when he was growing up. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever wondered what it'd be like to nose around a comedian's house, take their stuff and see how much money you can make by selling it? No, that's a pretty niche thing, to be honest. Bit creepy, really. But that's the premise of Dave's brand new comedy podcast, Hard Sell, with me, Josh Jones. And me, Darren Harrier. We're going to travel the country, visiting the homes of different comedians, chatting about their spending habits before grabbing one of their favourite possessions and giving ourselves one week to try and sell it for charity. 
in a competition to see who can raise the most money. It's a right laugh as we get to meet amazing funny people like Kima Bob, Joel Domit, Rhea Lena, Ivo Graham, Josh Pugh and lots more. But also sort of like an incredibly stressful cheese dream where we're trying to shift what are essentially stolen goods against the clock. <laughs> it's bonkers. Hard sell with Josh Jones. And Darren Harrier. Available now wherever you get your podcasts.